0: Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, Msheet at ViaHemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com.
2: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery.
1: Content warning. This episode contains descriptions of brutal violence and murder.
0: In the black and white photograph... The man and woman lie massacred on the bed. There's blood spatter all over the walls, blood on their bodies, blood on the white pillows. John's head tilts up toward the metal bed frame, leaving his pale neck exposed. Blood streaks his mouth and cheeks, and completely coats his face above his nose. The place where his eyes should be are just dark holes. Lucille's body is twisted into an L-shape, with her bloody head angled toward the window. Her visible arm bears bruises and gouges, signs of a struggle with a depraved killer. I don't know if it's a trick of the light, but her face looks like it's been crushed. In life, John ran the Golden Pheasant Inn on the outskirts of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Lucille worked there as a waitress. They were a couple, not married, but thoroughly committed to one another. John had a reputation for patience and diplomacy, valuable traits for the proprietor of a roadhouse business that could sometimes attract rowdies. Lucille was a devoted mother who was gracious enough to stay friendly with her ex-husband. They were people. They were more than the slaughtered corpses their killer left on that bed. But all these years later... We don't know who committed this evil act of carnage on may 19 1930 someone slipped into the golden pheasant inn murdered these two and disappeared into the night my name is anya kane
1: and i'm kevin greenlee
0: and this is the murder sheet a weekly true crime podcast.
1: Adi and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees.
0: Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a 1,000 eatery-related killings, the Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes.
1: We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage.
0: We're The Murder Sheet, and this is The Golden Pheasant Murders. We call ourselves the murder sheet for a reason. We maintain a literal murder sheet of all the bar and restaurant homicides that we can find, going all the way back to the brutal tavern brawls of the 1600s. Whenever we can, Kevin and I spend time trawling Google and newspapers.com to find new additions to our list. Newspapers.com is how I first came across the Golden Pheasant murders. Pretty quickly, I realized that I wanted to know everything I could about this case. The name Golden Pheasant sounded shady but gaudy, a little roadhouse reaching for opulence. And the killings themselves were so brutal, so mysterious. The setting of 1930s Wisconsin added to the intrigue. The Midwest may have a wholesome reputation in some circles, but the 30s were a turbulent decade for the region, marred by ransom kidnappings, robbery gangs, and poverty. I knew we had to cover this case for the podcast.
1: We reached out to the Green Bay Police Department and got bounced around for a bit until we were finally connected with Sergeant Michael Netzler. Here is Mike.
3: I'm a 28 year law enforcement veteran. I'm a patrol sergeant with the Green Bay Police Department, currently on the on the day shift. You know where they say most people go to
1: retire. But Mike doesn't just focus on modern day mysteries. He's also a bit of a historical detective.
3: I bring a pretty unique background to the table. In addition to my work in law enforcement, I've been an educator for the past 20 years. I do have a doctoral degree in criminal justice management. And I've written and published five books, including you know, a, a book that contains a story we're going to talk about today. It's called True Crime in Town USA, Cold Cases.
0: Side note, you can find that book on Amazon. But keep in mind that Mike is going to re-release it with an additional cold case story soon, so keep an eye out.
1: Talking to Mike, we learned that the Green Bay Police Department is an agency that cares about its history. The station maintains a small museum, complete with artifacts from old cases. It also devotes resources to some of the puzzling mysteries that endure within the city. In the early 2000s, Mike was investigating one such case, an infamous bank robbery, when he came across an unsolved double homicide.
3: And I, I kind of came across this one, the Golden Pheasant Murders, by by accident.
0: We don't want to get too off track here, but Mike basically proved that Hoosier Hellraiser and number one suspect John Dillinger didn't commit a bank robbery where an officer was shot in the head. Pretty wild. So when I was
3: going through the records for that particular case, a historian at the um, University of Wisconsin Green Bay told me about the golden pheasant, and I had never heard about the golden pheasant murder case. And uh, I'm a transplant from Milwaukee, so I didn't grow up in, in Green Bay. But I've always enjoyed researching. I've enjoyed researching. I've enjoyed writing. So what drew me to it Uh, primarily was that it was unsolved. It was a historical case, which kind of fell in line with what I was researching at the time. And it was, it shook the community, you know, back in the, back in 1930, which is when, which is when it occurred. And I had some success with the bank robbery case and I figured, well, this will be the the next one that I'm going to pick up.
1: So quickly, Mike went about seeing what kind of records existed for the Golden Pheasant case. He made one especially gruesome discovery with the help of a museum curator.
3: I had been with the curator, like I said, at the university here in our city. And she recommended I go to the museum. And we have a we have a museum in downtown Green Bay. Well, I met the curator there. I told her what I was looking into. And she said you know, Mike, we don't tell people this normally, but since you're a police officer, we kind of have a secret crime scene collection that nobody knows about. And that's how I found the picture of this original crime scene. Back in the 1930s, we didn't have crime scene photography. We hired a family, you know, a family portrait guy, you know, a professional photographer, you know, and we said, hey, you know, if we ever have a crime scene, you want to take pictures? And he's like, yeah, thumbs up. So what essentially happened was, he ended up dying in the 1960s, and his fan, the photographer, and his family is going through his his belongings, and they come across this box of, you know, grisly death scene photos, and they have no idea what to do with them. So they go, uh, they essentially, instead of throwing them away, they go to the museum and say, "Hey, do you want these?" Well, the museum kept it. They they, there was some historical value that somebody perceived. So that's how I came across the uh, the crime scene photo.
0: The brutal pictures give a glimpse to a dark side of Green Bay's history that few are familiar with.
3: Anytime somebody hears Green Bay, what do they think of the Green Bay Packers, right? The, the NFL football team, it's what we're known for, you know, which is a great thing. But there's also so much of history that is lost because it's so overshadowed by the Green Bay Packers. Like most people don't know, for example, that Uh, Zachary Taylor, who became a United States president, he commanded Fort Howard, which was on the west side of Green Bay at the time. And it was considered a primary port of entry during the uh, early times of our country. So they built a fort at the entrance to Green Bay, and that's where Zachary Taylor was a commander before he became president.
1: As he did during his investigation into the bank robbery, Mike had to dive into the seedy underbelly of Green Bay in 1930.
3: If we're talking at the time, 1920s, 1930s, the city itself, Green Bay proper, was much smaller. You know, we had the town of Preble on the east side, which is actually where this murder occurred. And then we had the town of Howard, which was on the west side of the city, which was also then, of course, named after Fort Howard. Uh, The gates of Fort Howard actually still stand today uh, in an alleyway on the west side, which is pretty cool to see the, the, the iron gates still stand. And Green Bay at the time, much like rest of America, it was um, definitely a blue collar community. It was uh, suffering the same impact of prohibition that all parts of the, of the country were at the time. But unfortunately it had its uh, seedier side as well, You know, especially this area where the Golden and murders occurred. It was known for, of course, its, it's bootlegged beer and liquor. It was known for its, its prostitution as well. But it was also a, a very hardworking community, and it, you know it still remains a hard-working community today and is known for its blue-collar midwest attitudes.
1: Despite the underworld element that sprung out of prohibition, Green Bay wasn't exactly known for being especially crime-ridden. Its core was a well-established downtown with big, beautiful houses. Quiet farmland surrounded much of the city. That being said, The outskirts and suburban areas did draw in some businesses that catered to citizens' seedier needs. One of those joints was the Golden Pheasant.
0: We don't want you to get the wrong idea. The Golden Pheasant Inn was not an out-of-control den by any means. Owner John von Vegel was no hardened criminal. He was a businessman. But, times being what they were, It was in his business's interests to establish a place where Wisconsinites could go to look for a good time, a spot where they could find certain outlawed goods and services. After all, in 1930, the repeal of Prohibition was still three years away. It had slot machines in it.
3: And at the time the murders occurred, there was a burglary ring that was going around the city where they were stealing from slot machines. And uh, that was also a place to go, but the slot machines, the uh, bootlegged beer and liquor, and the prostitution, of course, that were occurring, well, all of that was a violation of law. And it was also known to be a, a place where, you know, prostitutes would meet with their customers, let's
1: say. And if things got too hot, the golden pheasant could just take a bit of a hiatus.
3: And you would have, uh, you know, the, the owner was John, John Van Vagel. You know, there were times where if he would get a tip that the feds were coming into town, well, we close things down. So, you know, a lot of bar restaurant type of owners and proprietors you know, had to be conscientious of the uh, enforcement by the federal government of uh, prohibition and gambling and
0: such that would occur. The golden pheasant was also popular among locals for one particularly delicious dish.
3: Uh, It was very famous for its chicken, as a matter of fact.
1: Now, who exactly are John Van Vagel and Lucille Birdsall, the two victims we told you about in the introduction? We asked Mike to share what he's been able to gather about the couple at the heart of this case.
3: Well, John was the owner. John Van Vagel was 36 at the time, and he was the owner, and Lucille Birdsall was 24. John, to my knowledge and recollection, I don't believe was was ever married. He was very involved in business. He he wanted his business to be successful. He did suffer some loss earlier in life due to some of the pandemics and flus that were going around at the time. But he was known to be a very generous person. Uh, You know, wanted to avoid drama at all costs. If he had some sort of dispute with people, he would... He'd kind of, you know, brush it off and say, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to settle it tomorrow when the other hothead cools down. So he was definitely more of a diplomatic person.
0: Lucille was a waitress at the Golden Pheasant and John's girlfriend. Previously, she had been married for about eight years to a man named Frank Koopsik. She and Koopsik had even had a daughter together who lived up north in Sturgeon Bay near Birdzall's parents.
3: Uh, Lucille had been married very early in life. She was married at 16. Uh, One of the primary reasons for their divorce, uh, based upon the records, is he wanted to go to Milwaukee. Because if he went to Milwaukee, he could make like 75 cents more per hour doing what he was doing. And uh, well, she wanted to stay close to her parents. So that became a a primary source of strain. So they got divorced. He went to Milwaukee. Kid goes north to Sturgeon Bay and Lucille is working at the Golden Pheasant where she's working as a waitress. And she would also occasionally be a cook. After they split up, they remained good friends. You know, they remained good friends. They co-parented well together, you know, as much as you can back then, right? Where distance and communication were much different than they are today.
1: Based on their personalities, neither victim was the sort of person you'd expect to die in the way they did
3: the night of the murder was monday may 19th 1930 it was discovered on tuesday may 20th and the re- it got discovered because it was very uncommon for john to have his vehicle parked in front of the golden pheasant overnight you know they would they would close john would uh, would at times stay elsewhere and John's vehicle had not moved uh, over about a 24-hour period, maybe a little longer. One of the neighbors next door, and they would oftentimes go again to the to the Golden Pheasant to in, enjoy the, the the chicken dinners or lunches that were served. The neighbor next door, the wife of this uh, couple, was expressing concern that there had been no movement, and typically the Golden Pheasant was open on Mondays, and it never opened. So he. Uh, you know, he reluctantly went over, he kind of brushed it off, you know, everything is fine. And he went over there, found it locked and, and kind of figured that, you know, him and his him and his girlfriend, Lucille, were just spending intimate time together and he wasn't going to bother them. So that was on Monday night. You know, nothing was happening Monday, which was unusual. And he goes over there Monday night. He doesn't believe anything's in this. The next day, Tuesday morning, May 20th, 1930. Still no movement. And this uh, neighbor is very concerned. This is unusual. So what she does, and I'm sure she uh, would regret this later, is she sends her son over to the house because he is a lot more agile. And her son at the time, I believe, was about five, six years old. And she asks her son to climb on the boxcar, which was next to the restaurant, right up against the side of the restaurant and look in a particular window. Well, and sure enough, he he's able to do that. He looks in a window and he sees two bloodied and dead people on a bed inside this particular room. So that's how the the murder gets gets discovered.
0: Local authorities were called to the scene.
3: And at the time this jurisdiction would have been in Brown County, under the Brown County Sheriff's Department, because it wasn't City of Green Bay proper at this time in history. But the Sheriff's Department and the police department worked very well together. And the Sheriff's Department would ultimately get notified of the the homicide and the death. They would be the initial responding officers, and then they would later uh, notify the Green Bay Police Department and request our assistance, which is how we got involved in it.
1: A horror awaited these officers, and all these years later, Mike came face-to-face with that same horror in the form of the crime scene pictures. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be.
0: For so many of us, lifestyle changes, like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises, are all about putting our own health and wellness first, but it can be really hard to know where to begin We asked Mike to give us his insight on the details he's noticed about the crime scene. I would say
3: the evidence is that they were asleep at the time. John kind of lies in the same sleeping state. If anything, he, he likely gets hit in the head first. His hands maybe would have gone up to protect his head. That'd just be a natural response. But he remains in a very prone position, uh, lifeless where you will see it's just the opposite with Lucille. Uh, Lucille is in a very contorted position. What most likely happened is John was killed first, and Lucille was killed second. And during the murder of John, Lucille most likely woke up. We make that conclusion based upon the defense wounds that exist on her forearms and her hands. So I'm I'm sure she tried to do everything she could to fight off the attack. If John was struck first with the blunt force trauma uh, on the head, he probably suffered a concussion absolutely immediately and would not have been able to defend himself much. You know, once John was obviously dead, which I don't think unfortunately took long, you know, the suspect, and I'll say he generally, it probably was a male, turned his violence towards towards Lucille. I think the weapon had the ability to inflict both blunt force trauma and a a slicing or cutting type of trauma as well, which is evidenced by the crime scene photos. It was probably some sort of blunt forced object, either a a hatchet with a sharp blade on one side and kind of a blunted end on the the back. Some surmise that it it, it could have been a sickle, but I don't think a sickle was used because of the blunt force trauma to uh, John's face. I mean, his face was was for lack of any better term was bashed in. I mean, his his eye sockets were crushed. The crime. I mean, the crime scene photo is 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 chilling, and yeah, it is definitely a crime where a lot of emotion and a lot of passion existed. The violence that was exhibited upon both John and Lucille is absolutely horrendous.
1: As Mike examined the photos, he also saw something quite literally blood curdling.
3: What is very eerie about the main crime scene photograph is that you can see uh, there's blood splatter all over the wall, except in one section. And that is where you can nearly see the outline of a human being standing. It's creepy. So you see, like, blood all over, blood spatter, but you see this section, like this uh, kind of oval-shaped section, which is completely clean, which was probably caused by the person who was standing there inflicting this horrendous violence. It's actually creepy to, uh, to look at.
0: So how had the killer gotten into the golden pheasant to surprise John and Lucille in bed? And what was the motive for this awful killing? So the other,
3: the other aspects of the scene that were worth noting is they, they did find an unlocked basement door, and they believe if access was gained, that's probably how it was gained because there was no other evidence of any forced entry based upon the very minimal records that are available.
1: A local ring of slot machine thieves quickly attracted suspicion.
3: One of the slot machines was broken into. Now, you know, I don't know how much they would get in a slot machine theft or burglary at the time, but there was also a cash drawer that was readily available and that was never touched. So, I mean, we either we either presume that it wasn't touched because they didn't see it, you know, or were they trying to stage something? And I I doubt it was the latter. I just don't believe they saw it. They they saw the slot machine as a as a place to uh, to get some money from and maybe just didn't look.
0: But Mike has a hard time with the slot machine theory. But I
3: also don't think, you know, based upon my many years of experience, education and training, that this was a, a burglary gone wrong. Um, I, I've investigated and responded to hundreds of burglaries, if not a thousand. And thankfully, most burglars are property crime criminals. They're trying to get in, trying to get out, and they don't want to you know, encounter anybody. You know, at the time, because it's you know, well, there's risk there. You know, if you if you break into a house and someone else is there, you might you know get hurt. So, I, I initially did not think, based upon the the obvious emotion involved in the case, that it was just this random slot machine burglary that occurred, and then the the suspect goes into the room and then just says, "Well, I'm going to kill them too." Uh, it was a very very violent um, violent death and violent death scene.
1: From what Mike could find, the ring was never captured. But then again, they also didn't resort to violence in any other case.
0: Another suspect also arose early on in the investigation, Lucille's ex-husband. As you can imagine, investigators began to look into Frank Koopsick.
3: You know, the first person that became the obvious suspect was the ex-husband, right? It was it was um, Frank. And, but Frank had an alibi. Uh, by all accounts, Frank was in Milwaukee at the time. He drove up to Green Bay a few days after the uh, homicide itself to, quote-unquote, clear his name. Uh, he was actually held in jail for a couple of days. They um, ultimately cleared him as a, as a suspect.
1: But other names in the case have remained agonizingly elusive,
3: our research brought us to some relatives that were still alive at the, at the time. And one relative was a nephew. They did surmise that there, there was a suspect, and we, we don't know his name till this day, who was in the bar, who was hitting on Lucille that night. Uh, Lucille rebuffed his, his advances, you know, citing that she's already in a relationship. Uh, the guy was intoxicated. He was, although he was not known, he was known to a friend of John's because when they took this guy home because they wanted him out of the bar because he was drunk, he was said to have kicked out the windows in the vehicle that was taking him home. And John kind of blew it off, you know, like John oftentimes did. He wasn't a guy to to deal with conflict. So uh, that individual was considered a suspect uh, at the time, but within the records, and I'll tell you more about the records in a bit, is uh, that, that the name of that individual doesn't exist within
0: the record. So decades and decades later, with most witnesses and original detectives long dead, how does an investigator like Mike go about trying to solve a crime like this?
3: So you might be wondering how the heck did we investigate this? So much like you, you had shared with me. You know, you spend your uh, time, you know, looking at old newspapers or whatnot, which is how you locate these things. Well, back in 2004, when I began this research, I became a microfilm expert. Um, I spent hours in front of microfilm, going through newspaper article after newspaper article after newspaper article, and then with my law enforcement experience, I'm good at finding people. I discovered that there was a coroner's inquest that was done on this case. The only, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with those, with those processes, but the reason why a coroner's inquest is oftentimes held is that they believe that there are people who have information that will help them solve the case. So what a coroner's inquest does is you are essentially subpoenaed to it, let's say. You're asked to appear. You are sworn in, but it's not in a courtroom setting. It's, you don't have the pressure of a trial. So in other words, we're going to interview as many people under oath as we can to get information that will help us solve this particular case.
1: But unfortunately, the ravages of time had another roadblock to throw at Mike.
0: Sadly, I think some of you familiar with historical true crime have already guessed where Mike's going with this coroner's report business.
3: When I heard about a coroner's inquest, I'm like, this is beautiful. This is going to be a treasure trove of information. Well, back in uh, the 1950s, the Green Bay Police Department moved from the original City Hall location on North Jefferson Street to a supermarket, a vacant supermarket, where we became a temporary police department for two years while the new police department was being built. Some administrator, some chief, I don't know who made the decision, made the decision to destroy all the records. So the records are gone. And even the
0: coroner's inquest
3: records are gone.
0: As a history nerd and someone who cares about true crime and cold cases, I couldn't help but interject here. You just wish you could go back in time and just be like, don't throw these out. (laughs) I I couldn't. I couldn't believe it. Trust me.
1: But Mike wasn't about to give up.
3: So then what became our, our main source of history, stories, evidence, in addition to the newspaper, were the relatives that we were able to find. We did take some poetic license with uh, with the stories in order to create a narrative that people would be very interested in reading. But uh, it, you know, our, the story is based upon the facts that we know at the at the time that were available to us, uh, the newspaper articles primarily, and then the you know the narrative accounts that we were that we were able to collect.
0: Still, it's hard for a law enforcement official in the 21st century to look back and see what was done in the 1930s, even by well-meaning and competent for their era investigators. Things like forensics are just so different now.
3: So as you know, in crime scenes today, when law enforcement responds to crime scenes, we do a much better job today of locking down the scene, making sure it's not contaminated. Well, back then, it was just the opposite. By the time law enforcement got there, you had, I don't know how many people, 10, 15, 20, 30, who were inside the roadhouse. Not only were they inside it, I guess some of them thought this is probably the end of the roadhouse. Some of them were taking souvenirs off the walls and taking them with them. Yeah, it's it's, it's unbelievable.
1: Apparently, the Golden Pheasant's customer base became especially upset over one particular dish.
3: Uh, many people were were you know, upset that it was closed because you couldn't get the chicken there anymore. I mean, for goodness sakes, two people died, you know, but but people seemed upset about the
0: chicken. To this day, it's not clear what forensics were found at the scene.
3: We had a detective at the time who was known statewide uh, to be a fingerprint expert. He was very well known, very well trained. And fingerprints are very good evidence. But what's fascinating about fingerprints today is that fingerprinting evidence from 1930 until 2021 has not changed much. Uh, the only thing that has changed is the manner in which fingerprints are collected. You know, We have more technologies to collect prints, to make prints appear, to examine. But the, the manner in which fingerprints are analyzed today outside of using computers hasn't changed. It, it's very, very simple. So they did call him to the scene. But there is no record of whether or not um, any useful fingerprints were found.
1: The Golden Pheasant case is especially frustrating, given that it would probably get solved almost immediately if it happened today, barring an incident to compromise the crime scene.
3: Had this crime occurred today, there was so much DNA evidence available at that scene that I'm confident you would, uh, you would identify a DNA strand that is either in a database, uh, such, uh, such as the CODIS database, either as a known or an unknown sample. And I am confident there was a blood trail that led away from the scene. You know How far did it go? I have no idea. But uh, there, there was blood and plenty of it that was left at the scene and that was taken away from the scene.
0: From what Mike can tell, no strong leads came up after the crime. That being said, there were a few red herrings.
3: The murder weapon was never located. Uh, they did locate a hatchet of sorts buried in the backyard sometime later, but it wasn't believed to be the murder weapon itself. They did get early reports of a, uh, a man who appeared to be intoxicated stumbling down the road um, away from the scene. But the police eventually concluded he was just a a known vagrant to to police and that he didn't have anything to do with, uh, with the scene itself.
1: Oh, and in case you were wondering, Mike was not able to find any other cases like this one in the area, ones that featured a murdered couple bludgeoned to death in bed. There was a jailhouse confession, though.
3: So what happened in September 30th of that year, 1930, there was a jailhouse confession that was made related to this particular case. Now, we all know how jailhouse confessions are, right? We have to take them with a grain of salt. There's always a motive that somebody might make something up just to get time off their sentence or whatever it might be. And the Confession occurred in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, which is approximately 60 minutes south of Green Bay. And a guy named Thomas Donnelly was in jail at the time. And another prisoner would later report that he confessed to the Golden Pheasant murder. Well, initially, and it would not be handled this way today, is they uh, they being the correctional officers, jail staff, pull Donnelly out of his cell, and they interview him, and they try to get useful information regarding the golden pheasant. Donnelly gets all frustrated about it. He's pissed off that his um, cellmates would, you know, rat on him like this, but as they press him, he denies it, he denies it, he denies it. The Sheboygan Sheriff's Department gets a hold of the Green Bay Police Department, And we send a detective to the Sheboygan County Jail to interview him further, hoping that a detective with some additional skill might be able to get him to confess. Well, sadly, he denies it. He denies it, maintains his denial, and they are never able to connect any evidence to Donnelly to the Golden Pheasant murders. So at the time, they release him, and we never know what happens. from then on
0: so the double homicide went cold there were no answers in store for the victims loved ones their customers or the traumatized community the golden pheasant remained closed forever nobody knew why this awful thing happened
3: well it was obviously you know shocking not only to the loved ones but to the community as well you know it made you know headlines for a very long time. Besides the great loss of, of John and, and Lucille, you know, a daughter, a five-year-old daughter at the time, Betty Jane, ended up growing up without a mom and spent the rest of her life being raised by her grandparents, primarily in Sturgeon Bay. And they ultimately were seeking answers. And by the time, you know, we got our hands on it, you're talking kind of another generation removed. You know, so we had to, you know, maybe we were maybe talking to, you know, a nephew. And maybe the uncle would have had more information, you know, and which may have been the brother of of John. So we're talking two generations removed. But it was, it rocked um, the community. It shocked Green Bay and the and the surrounding county. And like many crimes back then, when something so violent like that happened, you know, the, the community would then lock their doors, um, which is foreign to me. I think you should lock your doors anyways. But, um, you know, it became definitely the the headline of the day until the you know, next major crime occurred and it ended up closing the business. I don't think it ever reopened. And it was something that did live on within the um, town of Preble at the time until it became the city of Green Bay. And it was ultimately torn down. Uh, the intersection today is University Avenue and Dan's. And even um, when the sands took place at the location, it has since changed again. So it went from the Golden Pheasant to Lee's Cantonese restaurant to now a strip mall, is what it is is today.
1: Yep, you heard that right. There was a seance in this case, and it was about as silly as you can possibly imagine.
3: So they did a seance, and what they did is the, the individual who did the seance, the psychic that did the seance, after the Golden Pheasant seance, he has never done a seance like this again. He was so freaked out by it. And what they did is he did what, and I don't know much about their, you know, their techniques or their approaches, but they did what was called an automatic writing exercise. And I believe the theory is we're going to connect with the spirit here. You know, the spirit's going to speak to me and I'm going to write down just automatically what the spirit says. So they start communicating with what they believe are the the spirits of either Lucille or John. And what they discover at the time is they believe... The spirits tell them that the murder weapon that was used is a corn sickle, that the individual that committed the murder had a dark beard and a prominent nose, but as of 1990, the killer died between 1940 and 1942 in a car crash in Chicago. During the seance, some very unusual tapping occurred, completely unexpected, that nobody had ever heard before. And the Psychic would later say that he was so emotionally impacted by it and the connection that occurred that he will only now do uh, seances for entertainment.
4: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you can find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or
2: visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
0: So, what's the status of this case now, in 2021?
2: Because
3: the coroner's inquest records are gone, we don't have access to the information that they were considering at the time. So we don't have a sound suspect in this particular case.
1: But Mike believes he has a sense of the broad motivation behind the crime.
3: We have motive. We we, we think the motive was a crime of passion. You know, I I go back to my original conclusion. It was clearly a a crime of passion and, and of great emotion. But, you know, was it a jilted lover? Was it, you know, somebody who... Uh, was intoxicated and rebuffed, and then came back later that night in some sort of fit of jealousy. Was it an interrupted burglary? If it was, it'd be unusual. It'd be unusual for for burglars to suddenly become murderers. So it is definitely, you know, we call it a a cold case for a reason, because it's it's still a cold case today. In speaking with the relatives, the relatives were the surviving relatives at the time were unable to provide us with any enemies that that John had. You know uh, that would explain it. Um, I don't think it was it was connected to any sort of of prohibition type activities, any sort of gambling or gambling debts, um, or anything related to prostitution. There's nothing in the record that says John was necessarily a, a keeper of prostitution or or running prostitutes uh, did they go there to carry out their business yeah they did but there was nothing in the record to indicate that you know he was the one who was you know making the arrangements if you will so we don't have a a solid you know theory as far as a suspect is concerned um, I pride myself in being able to discover it but you know like you said I want to strangle the person that you know that that decided you know we don't need these records let's just throw them away it's, it, it's definitely a mystery, but what we do have is insightful, but it's not enough for us to to identify a suspect, unfortunately.
2: Please,
0: if you happen to know anything about the Golden Pheasant case, contact Mike Netsker at the Green Bay Police Department. His email is Netzger at GreenBayWI.gov. That's M-I-K-E dot K-N-E-T-Z-G-E-R at G-R-E-E-N-B-A-Y-W-I dot G-O-V.
1: Thanks very much to Mike for his time and insight on this case. Don't forget, you can find his book on Amazon. But again, just note that a new edition with an extra cold case will also be coming out soon.
0: We also want to extend our thanks to the Green Bay Police Department for connecting us with Mike. It's always really nice to encounter a modern-day institution that is so serious about understanding and preserving its own history.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet. And who you can find on the web at kevintg.com
0: to keep up with the latest on the murder sheet please make sure to follow us on instagram and twitter at murder sheet and on facebook at m sheet podcast or by searching murder sheet if you enjoy listening to the murder sheet please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure and send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.